Ain't surprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days This representation of small brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my team Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives And speaking of working hard this show was presented by Ragnar Relays. Ragnar Relays are just a fantastic way to achieve great things and to do it with great people. And that really is the name of the game. It's why people love doing so many things within the running community. And Ragnar Relays is right up there. They are the stage races that you can do either on the roads or on the trails. And you just pick out the best people you know and you compete hard with them. And because of that... There is no limitation in terms of the you know caliber of runner that you need to be, okay? It's not just for elites or anything like that. You can be at any level of runner because you can get you know 8 to 12 people to run with you. It really can be just an extraordinary experience, something that's far better of a vacation or a weekend away than just sitting on the beach. You can achieve something with the people who mean most to you. And in addition to that, you can save 80 bucks when you go to runragnar.com and use code RAMBLING19. That's runragnar.com. Use code RAMBLING in the number 19 to save 80 bucks. 80 Bucks. What a deal. Thank you, Ragnar Relays. So this episode is with Liz Kamey. Liz is somebody who, you know, I have been fortunate to have a lot of great people on the show. There isn't an interview I've done that I haven't regretted. That's that's for sure. With that said, every once in a while, I'll be doing an interview. And in the moment, I'll just think to myself, oh, my goodness, people are going to love this one. And this is exactly what this episode was like for me. Liz is fantastic. She is so good at explaining different aspects of her life. And I have no doubts that you're going to love every aspect of it. We touch on so many things. And she's just, just a fantastic guest. I'm not going to give up the... uh you know exactly what we talk about. If you've read the show notes, then you might already know. But I'm going to leave it to Liz to describe her amazing life and what she's been able to do. So thank you for listening. And here's my conversation with Liz Kamey. Hello, Liz, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Oh, hi, Matt. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you on the show. That's for sure. It's funny. I was actually texting back and forth with Parker Stinson this afternoon and um, he likes to talk about how his wife is the fastest teacher in America, and he likes to brand her that way. It's always this funny thing he posts on social media. And I was like, hey, just a heads up, I'm talking to a woman who's trying to run a 235 marathon who's a teacher today. I was like, you might have to give your wife a heads up. And he was dying laughing. He's like, oh, I got to meet this Liz Cammy. <laughs> that's really funny. Oh, I, I love to meet other teachers, too. So that's fun. Well, it's a rare breed. I, my wife is a special ed teacher. Oh, is she? Yeah, she is. So I get to see it firsthand. That's for sure. So when you, so you are a special ed teacher. What do you teach and what ages do you teach in? So, um, I start, well, I've kind of been all over the map in my early career. Um, I was a special ed teacher for fourth grade through 12th grade, um, in a specialized setting. Uh, for our county schools um, that specialized in autism. And um, then I went and I moved into more of um, a position of administration, actually uh, overseeing special ed programs and um, teaching periodically. And I've been doing that for the last five years. 
Got it. And then where do you where do you live right now? I live in Simi Valley, California. Got it. Okay. So that that's good to know to sort to place you for everyone who's listening now. So what made you want to become a teacher in the first place? You know, I feel like it started really early on that I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't know um what kind of teacher. I always liked um the thought of teaching mainly because I had two younger siblings. And I love to teach them, should you say, or more maybe be a dictator. Um, <laughs> so I always had. A- <laughs> this, this sounds exactly like my seven-year-old daughter. I love how diplomatically you try to put it at first. Yeah, you know, hitting them with rulers, um, you know, bossing them around, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I think it just came kind of naturally to me. My mom um, was a teacher and. Um, you know, I just, I, I just kind of started down that path. And then really in high school, it came to me that I really wanted to work with um, a population that struggled. Um, I was a volunteer for a youth camp with students that had um, significant physical challenges and helped them um, do physical activities, you know, water ski, rock climb. And I thought, this is what I want to do. So I actually originally started out as majoring in adaptive PE to work with um, students with physical handicaps. And then as I got more into the early stages of teaching, I gravitated towards um, autism and some of the other, um, but really uh, challenges under, under that umbrella. Now, what made you want to volunteer for that population when you were younger? Not only do I say that because it's not exactly something that you hear most kids doing, but also can be a, vis- a physically demanding, you know, occupation or, or volunteer effort. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure what sparked my interest. It, I think, it kind of started with my mom. We, I grew up in Chico, California, and we have a university, Chico State, there, and they have a wonderful program. Um, their their program is a it's called Ability First Camp, and it it really um, seeks to have students come from all over for the summer to engage in water sports, just like I said, rock climbing, tennis, and they even have a dance at the end of the, the week. And I participated in all of that as a volunteer multiple years. And I think that was mainly facilitated in the beginning by my parents. But then um, as the years went on, I continued to want to do that. So you just continued down that path and you never kind of grew tired of it? You just just embraced it more and more? Yeah, I found that the more I learned about um, the way that people learn and the way that we, you know, do school in America, should you say, Western culture, I became more and more fascinated with just school um, and how how to teach people and how we can um, foster learning environments for everyone. I'm a huge person. Um, I guess in in our world, I speak. Um, you know, in the special education side of inclusion, I really think that we all belong together if we possibly can. So, um, I guess early on in my career, I really wanted to work in a way that I could reach as many students as I can and make them feel like they're part of the general population. Yes, yeah, so that's exactly what my wife does. She's she works in in a, in a inclusion school as well, and she's kind of bounced back and forth between second and third, and third and fourth. And it really is, um, you know, if you can if you can work in if a student can work in that model, 
um, effectively, not only individually, but with the, with their small group, whenever they have to break out, it really can be a positive thing. That's for sure. But it's also very challenging from a teacher's perspective to kind of do that balancing act between, you know, showing someone as much one-on-one attention as you can as appropriate while still kind of having them in the, the general classroom population. Yeah, absolutely. I would think for, you know, both the general ed and the special ed teacher, it's this delicate balance of that. What really, you know, made me most passionate and completely, I guess, changed my perspective on how I felt about it is when I had my own children. Um, Having my own children really made me think about how, what kind of classroom would I want my kid to step into? You know, how would I want that teacher to be? How do I want my kid treated? And from then on out, I looked at every student like this was my own kid. And, you know, when I was teaching, just thinking about what kind of attention would I want my kid to get right now? What kind of access to peers and curriculum and experiences? And so I just always lived with that. And even in the most challenging situations, you know, we're not perfect as teachers, but I would just think, you know, how would I want someone treating my kid right now? And sometimes they just need a big old hug or a smile or, you know, just a pat on the back, like you can do this and, and, and just, you know, all around, just trying to encourage them. Absolutely. Now, how old are your, how old are your kids right now? So I have um, an eight-year-old and a three-year-old. Okay. So we're almost exactly the same here. So my kids are seven and four. Okay. And I have my older one is a is a is a daughter and my younger one is a son, just like you. And you were just telling me a little funny story about your son as you were getting ready for the show. Yeah, yeah. So I I messaged my sister in law earlier today and I said, Hey, I've got, I'm gonna um talk to someone tonight and I really can't be interrupted. You know, can I bring the kids over? And she said, Yeah, no problem. So I, I brought them in, but they have a pool. So I'm always really nervous with my younger one um, around water because, um, well, number one, he's not 100% pool safe. And two, he's just reckless. I mean, it's not even just water. It's anywhere in general. I can't take my eyes off of him. And so I told her, I said, you know why the hour I'm gone, I need him in his floaties and I need him to stay alive. <laughs> so kind of like how I live my life right now. Yeah, exactly. You have those those crazy younger kids that obviously need not only do they want your attention just to like, you know, they, they're they're so desperate for their, their parents attention at that age. But especially if they're like a little mini tornado, it really can be an exhausting experience, which is why I want to talk to you about just the effect that, you know, working in education mm-hmm. while also being a parent, specifically a mother in your case of two young kids. Not even factoring the running in right now, because we'll, we'll certainly touch on that. You're an absolutely fantastic runner. But just talking about the parenting and the, the educating, what's it like for you just from mental, physical, and emotional fatigue dealing with those things when school is in full swing? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, you know, um, I try my best to keep it together, but it, it, it is a lot. Um, and I would say that most days by the end of the day, I am really exhausted. And I, but you know, as a parent, you're, you're always on and it's like, you want the lights out and, 
you know, it can't always be that way. You know, someone wants a glass of water or, you know, a cookie or something. You're just like, I just want to go to sleep. Um, yeah, I would say even without the running, I'm, I'm pretty tired from the time that I wake up from the time I go to bed, but I just try and look at it. Like I'm so thankful to have opportunities and have, you know, have children and have a, you know, wonderful life, you know, all of those things just count my blessings, but it, it is really hard. Um, you know, we, our mornings start out really early trying to get ready for school. And actually the last, you know, part of, um, last year, my husband was actually living in a different part of the state for seven months. And that was really challenging because I was doing it all on my own. And so, I mean, I, we just had to be super organized from the time that we left the house, you know, at seven 30 in the morning until most evenings, I would get home late. And so trying to manage, you know, you think about it, lunches, you know, where people need to be and I need to be and I need to be on for work and then dinner and laundry and (laughs) swimming lessons and all of those things. So yeah, it can be very exhausting. I would say the night before my husband came home, I really tried to not complain about how tired or anything that I had going on. But the night before he came home, seven months being gone, I recorded a video for him and I just said, I'm so glad you're coming home because I can't do one more day. (laughs) You know, I just had hit that point. Like I did seven months and I can't do at that point. I was like, I can't do one more hour. You know, it just you you just hang in there. Right. Absolutely. So was he what what took him away from home for, for so long? Um, so he was working in education for a while and then he, um, he went on the highway, the California highway patrol and, um, they have a a seven month live in academy. So he went up to Sacramento, um, which is about 400 miles North of where we live for seven months. Oh my gosh. So when you heard that, let's just, let's just put that in perspective, right? So you heard that obviously like you know, th- those sorts of decisions aren't made in a vacuum. So I can just assume that like, you know, this is a family decision and, you know, so on and so forth. But when you hear that whole seven month thing, what was that like for you being like someone who's not only dedicated to their job and their family, but you know, you are a, you know, an extremely dedicated runner as well. When you saw that seven months coming on the horizon, what were some of the things that, you know, were going through your mind? Yeah, definitely. I mean, how I li- I mean, us runners, we're always thinking about when we're going to get our next run in, right? So I'm thinking, what am I going to do with um I mean, my husband is my husband and he's the dad, but I'm like, he's the he's the babysitter while I'm going running. <laughs> like, what am I going to do without out my guy? Um so I did go into kind of freak out like, oh no. And I did have to, I mean, I just didn't race very much. So, um, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be able to train like I wanted to, but I knew it was the best decision for my husband and our family and especially long term. And so I just kind of sucked it up, I guess is what you could say. But I did a lot of runs on the treadmill. Um, I, I have a gym and I joined the childcare. So I would <laughs> stick my kids in the childcare for a couple hours so I could get a run in at least on the treadmill. And, you know, I just kind of bounced around. Um, thankfully, I have a mother-in-law that lives in town and she graciously takes care of my children whenever I need. And um, I've got a great support system and everyone knows how much I love to run. So, you know, my mom would come down and she would help watch the kids. And I just I have a great community that's pretty much in full support, but you never want to take advantage of those people. So trying to not uh 
cause everyone to have to dance around my running, but, um, I, you know, you just make it work, but yeah, it's, it, it was, it was a hard, it was a hard one. It definitely caused me to be very organized and planned for sure. Yeah. You really have to be right in order to try to maximize as much as you can. And I could, I totally can sympathize and empathize with, you know, not wanting to ask too much of others, which is funny. Cause I'm sure you get this as well that the grandparents are like, this is not putting me out. This is why like, I, this is why I want you to live close to me so I can take care of the kids. But you have that guilt of being like, of asking them and then being like, all right, like I know these kids can be a handful and you're just one person. Like, you know, you don't want to like put them out. So it's, it's, it's this awkward dance between, you know, the grandparents want to help out, but you also don't want to feel like you are taking advantage of their generosity. For sure. I feel like that with everyone. And then I also, and I don't know if you have this as a dad, but I love my runs. And and when I'm about to go on a run, I'm excited about it. But the longer runs, sometimes my husband or someone, whoever has the kids will send me a text message from the park of the kids on a swing or climbing on something. And I get this like fear of missing out. Like, so then a couple of times I've cut runs short to run to whatever park they're at or there'll be at a play place or Sometimes they go to a restaurant. I'm like, I'm cutting this short. I'm going to go <laughs> join them on on this fun because I start to think like, is this run really worth it? I'm missing out of, you know, whatever fun they look like they're having. But then you get there and it's utter chaos. And I think, oh, man, <laughs> why did I do that? <laughs> but, you know, you, you just. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine you like many times being like, yeah, you know what? Cutting that run short was definitely the best move. As someone who like. I, I do all of my runs when my kids are asleep. Like I would relish the opportunity to go for a long run while they're still awake. So part of me is like, yeah, man, just go for it. Like just keep doing your thing. Yeah. I, I experienced that. And when, um, when my husband was home and working more of a, you know, eight to six job or whatever he was doing before, I would wake up really early because he was home and I would have my run completely done before anyone was up in the house. But things really changed, obviously, last year. So I started kind of a different thing. And then, yeah, and I just felt like during the day I was away from him so much already. Like I hated to be then away from him another selected two hours. So just trying to balance that. But I feel very fortunate. I have a treadmill at home. So I often hop on the treadmill at, you know, four o'clock in the morning or some, you know, crazy time like that just to get it out of the way. So I don't have to um, take away from time with the kids or, you know, my family. So you ran a 243 marathon at CIM in 2017. Yes. Um, with that being the case, you know, they obviously they got you your OTQ, but you've been hovering around that same you know, time frame for a little while. You, you, you're an experienced marathoner who's done, who's done really well. With that being the case, when you were a runner at Cal State Northridge, did you think that this kind of, you know, marathon training was going to be in your future, or or did you think that like post college you'd be doing something very different? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I, you know, I never thought I would run a marathon. No, because it just sounded daunting and awful. Truthfully. Um, when I, you know, I think it's both of those things. I think it's 100% (laughs) both of those things. Right. (laughs) This is someone who is, who I I was literally just on the phone with the people at CIM this afternoon. I'm going to be running CIM, um, this coming December, but I can, I still can testify that is both of those things simultaneously. Yeah. Well, and I remember, you know, people would talk about running marathons and, you know, when I was 20, 21 or something, I'm thinking, 
those people are crazy, you know, because the furthest I had run was, you know, a 10K. And um, no, I didn't think that I'd ever be a marathoner. I always had big dreams, you know, and I never, you know, had, I guess, quantified them or anything. Um, I definitely didn't have the college career that I wanted, um, mainly because of the anxiety I have about racing, which I still have. Um, but I, I got done with college and I still wanted to run, although I did take a little break and traveled in Europe and, you know, did a couple other little funny things, you know, substitute teaching. And, but then I pretty much got it in my head that I wanted to qualify for the Olympic trials in some capacity. And I started kind of doing the numbers and I'm like, uh, I don't know about the track, but let's, let's try out this like marathon thing and maybe I'll qualify for Boston. And I actually did run a marathon really, oh my gosh, not prepared at all in, um, I think it was 2007. Um, and I ran 408 and it was, it was awful. I mean, Matt, I can't even tell you, I think I had to go home and it took me like a week to recover and I never would have finished, but my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time was there. And, um, he was in the Marines actually. And he was, you know, a tough guy and everything. And I thought I cannot drop out of this. Like, I can't let him think that I am not going to finish that I'm a quitter or that I'm not tough. And I just toughed it out. And it was, I mean, it was awful. I don't even know if I can say this, but I was like throwing up. I was crying, but then, you know, once I finished, I was like, oh yeah, I'm good. And I'm in my head. I'm just like, I wanted to die. It was so bad, but that kind of put the little bug in my ear. Like you can't let that be your one and only marathon, you know, kind of thing. And so then I, then I kind of got it in me that I was going to start working towards that. I think for me, the Boston standard was 335 and my next race, I, I ran that. And then um, you know, I just slowly started chipping away, but then I got pregnant. So, you know, that that's what got the, you know, wheels going, but yeah, that's kind of, I got kind of down to those lower, lower times. And then, you know, the, life started happening. So how did race anxiety first start manifesting itself? Oh gosh. Um, when I was a young child, I don't know if you have race anxiety or anything, but I always, as a kid, had um, that kind of uh, scared to fail mentality, um, and I remember even as as a small child having it. Like I, not necessarily being able to put words to it, but I was always afraid to disappoint, whether it be my parents or a teacher or whoever, a friend. I never wanted anyone to be disappointed with me, and so once I started you know, engaging in sports. I played basketball and tennis and I did soccer and um, I started to run, you know, in middle school, high school. Once I, you know, started being competitive, I realized like, I don't know if I can do this because I hated, um, I was fine in practice, but anytime it came to a game or it came to a race, I, I would, you know, start to get so nervous, like almost the point where I mean, truthfully, in high school, I don't even know if sh I should admit this because I don't want anyone to know this, but I will. I I would occasionally miss a race on the track, like, and say I didn't hear the calls for it because I was so crippled with fear. And that really continued 
I mean, I still have it now, but I'm so thankful for Dr. Carol Dweck and her book Mindset. And I don't know if you've read it or if you're aware of Dr. Dweck's work, but um, she's really, yeah, she's really helped me overcome some of those fears. And then just getting older and having kids and all of that has helped me um, be willing to put myself out there and take risks and, and not see failure as failure, but as a means to always get better. And then like, I don't want my kids to adopt that same sense of like failure and for them to know, like, no matter what, like I'm, you're never going to let me down. You know what I mean? Like effort is better than anything. Right. So just learning to accept myself for where I'm at and who I am and, and embrace every challenge. And then when I don't meet my own expectation or what I think are expectations that people had of me, that I look at it like, that's okay. You know what I mean? Like I'm an, I can get better. And if someone's disappointed with me, like, I'm really sorry, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that to happen, but it doesn't have to be this way, you know? And so much of that's in our own head, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right when you say it's in your own head, because like you just mentioned, like you don't want to pass on in some way accidentally that your kids would feel the same anxiety you did. But do you feel like you somehow had that sort of like people pleasing, scared to fail um, feeling because your parents were putting pressure on you? No, never. And that's what's so weird about it. My parents are wonderful. And I wouldn't be still racing today if it was, if, you know, if it weren't for them, um, they were always encouraging. And in fact, like they never, I mean, their love or how proud, whatever, you know, they were of me was never contingent on performance. Actually, like when I didn't do well is when they were the most nice and caring for me, you know? And I remember when I would get so defeated, you know, I wouldn't have a good race or I'd be disappointed my mom would just be like, Oh, let's go out to eat or let's, you know, go shopping or, you know, they were always, both my parents were so loving and gracious no matter what. And they just wanted me to keep trying. And then if I was so miserable, they used to just tell me, you know, when the season's over, then quit, you know, whatever it was. Um, but I never, it was like, almost like that permission to quit gave me more fuel. Like, no, I'm going to keep going. (laughs) I'm not a quitter. I'm not going to give up. So I always had that voice in the back of my head, like, just, just keep trying, just keep, you know, moving forward. And, um, you know, I've kind of used that momentum, I guess, you know, I've been running 25 years now. So, you know, you know, the ups and downs and, and you start to realize, like, you have good seasons and bad seasons. And sometimes the lows last a really long time. And that's why when things are good, I mean, soak it up and love it because it might not come around again, you know, ever, you know, who knows. And how did it affect you once you got to college? I, I just had those same fears. And I mean, I, I'm sure everyone has a different belief or philosophy, but, you know, I went away to college. I was just 18 years old and I look back and I was still so young. I was kind of a late bloomer on, on all ends, not just in terms of my athletic performance, but just um, socially, emotionally. And I think I spent the better part of my college career just kind of figuring things out. And I think that went for running as well. I, um, I had some good races, but I don't think I, I definitely didn't race consistent. I was all over, um, again, crippled by fear and anxiety. And so, you know, I ran at a division one school and conference and I mean, people are so good, you know, and, 
uh, I was always really intimidated. Um, and instead of looking at it, like I do now, like I have the opportunity to race with fast people. Like I can race fast too, you know, just hang on. I looked at it like, Oh my gosh, you know, I just would freak out. And, um, I think that that, that really hurt me in terms of my performance in college. And always, uh, one of the reasons I've loved to run even now is uh, socially. I've met a lot of people. I love um, meeting people at races. And in college, I think I enjoyed more of my team and my friends and the aspect of having, you know, social friendships than I did the competition, maybe. Because I always practiced really well. It was, you know, practice went great. And then it would come time to race. I'm sure my coach is going, what is going on with Liz? She's such a head case. You know, and I kind of was. So <laughs> there's truth to that. So what about the races specifically would be um, difficult for you to overcome? And by, I'll just throw out some examples. Like, was it one of those things where, like, you just would have, like, dead legs and you wouldn't be able to perform and you weren't really quite as snappy as before? Or to be coming more like, all right, when things got tough in the race, you would back down as opposed to like, you know, fighting through some of the difficult spots to get to, you know, when things kind of open up for yourself and kind of digging in past your perceived limits and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it was kind of a little bit of both. I don't really know. I, I've never been afraid to work hard. And even when I was younger, I mean, I would work out until, you know, I would fall over. Um, and I was never afraid to really push myself, but I think that when it got time to have big races, I always raced really well in the beginning of the season. And then progressively, it was like, I had nothing left to finish out the season. And I think that I would kind of self-sabotage, you know, it was like, I, I never tapered well. I would always, you know, do extra runs or, um, you know, I would think, oh, I'm not prepared enough you know, for conference or, um, I need to do more. And so I, I would just add on a bunch of things. And I, I did that for a long time. So it was almost kind of like self-sabotage. So yeah, I would get out there and I wouldn't be, <laughs> I wouldn't be fresh. I'd be tired. And then mentally I would just go, Oh, I would just kind of give up and I wouldn't want to, but I didn't know how to overcome it. If that makes sense. And I think that's where just getting older has helped me and getting over my fear of, just even before the race, it's like, yeah, I might feel great today or I might feel horrible. And you really don't know until you get out there most of the time, right? If you've done everything correctly. And then when it does, you know, come time to taper now, I take that really serious and I take my rest serious where I never did before. So you were just really nervous about like how you would compare to other people? I think so. I, I really think, you know, it's like I can't travel back in time and get in my head, but I do think that that was more, I was a lot more nervous. I was more concerned about standing on the line and like smiling at the person next to me than I was the race. <laughs> you know, I think I just was kind of out of it. <laughs> That's funny. So, <laughs> so looking back on it now, how do you view talent in terms of um, how well you or anyone in that that conference? You know, you're Division One in California, and obviously you're running against some really good play, really good, um, really good runners and talented athletes. With that in mind, how do you view talent now in terms of how it is um, correlated with success versus other elements, with whether it's hard work or you know consistency or mental toughness and things like that? Like, how much does talent play a part in the college level that you saw in terms of success 
whether it's cross country or track? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, well, I do think that there are exceptionally talented people out there. Uh, I mean, no doubt. Um, but I think that's why I love running because I think that you can be very talented, but if you can't put in the work and you're not tough, then you're not going to reach those really high levels. Um, because with running, I mean, it, it is, it's hard, hard, hard work. And then you, when you put in that hard work, you have to go out and you've got to be really, really tough, uh, you know, to run those fast times. There's no getting around that. There's no shortcuts. Um, you know, in the marathon, there are no shortcuts. And I think that's why I appreciate the marathon so much and the people that I've met and just the experiences. That's why I continue to do it and love it. And I, I hope to, you know, as long as my body holds up and as long as I'm willing to put in the work to do it, because it's, it feels awesome to prove to yourself. Like, I, I mean, you can't get in your head and know how talented on, you know, if you're going to measure a one to 10 scale where, where your talent level is, but you know how hard you can work, you know? And, um, again, that's why I think that at any level, whether it be at the college level or the professional level or, um, you know, even at the, the younger kids, I look at them running and I want to just encourage them like, yeah, you know, there, you might see these people that are national champions or, you know, going to Foot Locker and, and all these things, but you can do that too. I firmly believe that people can do so much and, and running is a great example of that. And I, and I try and encourage my students with that too. Cause you know, it's the same thing when you're sitting in the classroom and you're like, that person's so smart. I'll never be as smart as that person. Well, you, you don't know that, you know, keep working hard, keep reading, keep engaging, you know, um, find, find love for whatever you're doing and you can do great things too, you know, and it, and it goes back to that anxiety. I was talking about that comparison game, you know, when we're always comparing ourselves to other people, it really limits what we can do. And, and I think that's what I've really tried to channel with myself is not worry about what other people are doing. Appreciate that other people are working hard too, but know what I can do and that I can continue to do that and continue to get better and continue to show myself that it, I, I'm the one that's going to put the limits on myself. So what happened when you all of a sudden decided that you were going to go for an Olympic trials qualifier, especially coming off like the 408 first marathon <laughs> a college career that, that, that didn't necessarily measure up to your expectations. Um, what, what was that? When you flip that switch to like, all right, I'm going to go and become an Olympic trials qualifier. Like that's a huge jump, yeah. right? This is huge mental shift. What precipitated that for you? Uh, I think just, I started saying that I was going to, <laughs> like, I just got into my head. I, I saw other people that were doing it. Um, and, uh, I think it was. Bethany Bloomquist, actually, she missed the trial standard. I think it was in 2012 in the steeplechase. And I had just found out, um, no, I had just had my daughter, I think. And I, and I, um, read something about her and how she had worked so hard. And, um, at that point, I had gotten really close myself, um, to, to getting, you know, down into the low, lower three hour range in the marathon. So I was starting to be able to taste that I might be able to, to get, you know, down to those lower times. And I remember thinking, gosh, like if, if she can do it and, and I remember her from when I ran, um, in college, 
you know, maybe I could do it too. You know what I mean? You start um, hearing stories about people that were, you know, in your same conference or that, you know, maybe were in your same circle that, that um, were starting to go to the next level. And then I think that started to inspire me just hearing stories of other people. And that's a great example right there of like how, you know, that like comparisons aren't always, aren't always bad. No, right. No, like that's a no. great example of like, of like comparison for you being a very positive thing. It's like, you weren't sure what you were capable of, but you knew what these other people were doing and you knew who, how you stacked up against them. And all of a sudden it broadened your horizons. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I remember telling my mom and dad, I said, you know, I think I want to try and run that standard. And my mom, her eyes kind of widen, like, well, that would be something, wouldn't it? You know, kind of like, uh, sure. Keep, <laughs> we love, we love how you dream kind of thing. And she didn't mean it in a mean way, but at that point, you know, I had gotten a master's degree and I was teaching and married. And I think my parents were thinking, you know, that I was taking a different turn in life. And so then I kept always like throwing out, you know, goals. And I think they kind of were like, oh, that, that's a good goal, Elizabeth, you know? And I remember just having those conversations and thinking, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I think I just realized that even if it didn't happen overnight, I could slowly chip away at it. And I believed in my heart I could do it. I didn't know the day. I didn't know the year. I didn't know the time. I didn't know the circumstance, but I believed in my heart that if I really wanted to do it, that I could. And I think I just hung on to that. And every time I got close, I still would tell myself, you, you got this. <laughs> I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know where, but we're going to do this. And so, you know, I, I just, I lived with that. So you talked earlier about toughness. What is the, you know, what, what aspect of your running career are you most proud of in regards to toughness or overcoming something? Oh, um, well, I think, uh, that probably coming back, like I ran 246 at the LA marathon, um, right before the, um, 2016 trials to try and make that standard. And, um, it was a really hot day in LA and I was ready to run. I mean, I think my body was in condition to run, you know, 241, 240, and I just couldn't do it. It, it was hot and it was not a good day for really anyone um, on that course. And so it was 2015. Anyway, um, I walked away really disappointed, but I thought, you know what, I'll come back again and I will, um, train. And I think I had my eyes, um, on grandma's marathon in 2015 to try and run it. And, um, I started working up for that. And then I found out, um, in May, um, that I was pregnant. And so Surprise. Uh, I know. And so uh, obviously that dream quickly went away because I realized, you know, I'm pregnant. I'm going to spend the rest of 2015 pregnant with an with a coming a baby coming right around, you know, the 2016 trials. You know, it's done. It's over. And I think I grieved for like 30 seconds. I mean, I did. I, you know, I was sad, but I was immediately, you know, happy because here I was going to have my second child and my husband it loves the running and he's so happy for me, but he doesn't, he's not a runner himself. So it's not like we sit around talking running all the time. So for me to sit around and feel sorry for myself about 
you know, where I had gotten and where I wanted to be, he really wasn't like in a, not, they wouldn't be sympathetic to me, but he, it just wasn't something he was going to entertain. And so I kind of just, you know, got rid of it. And I sat in my, you know, living room holding a newborn baby. And I watched the 2016 Olympic trials. They were in LA and, um, and I remember watching it and going, uh, 2020, I'm going to be there. You know, (laughs) yeah, I'm sitting here holding a newborn baby, but I'll be at 2020. And so I think I'm most proud of, you know, coming back from, from all of that and being sad and, um, just, you know, then turning around and by, you know, 18 months later, I, I ran the standard. Yeah, that is awesome. Like what, what an amazing thing, because it would have been really easy for you to just kind of like at that point, pack it in. Right. Just say, eh, well, I got a lot of stuff going on. I tried to make it work. It didn't quite happen, you know, and, you know, it's it's never it's never easy coming back postpartum running, even in the best of circumstances. It's always tough. So it would have been really easy for you to come back. So what were some of the things that either inspired you or led you on in in that in that effort to, to regain your form and then some to qualify for the trials? Obviously, with those sorts of things is, uh, you know, it, it largely is internalized within yourself, but there oftentimes can be certain factors that can spur you on or drive you and, and you know, to, to achieve that higher level. Yeah, I think, well, there was definitely a few factors that contributed. One was I, you know, most of my post-college career, I never trained with anyone. And it was funny, you know, after I had Blake. Um, in 2016, I met a, my, one of my neighbors. She's a runner. She's actually a really fast runner. She's run about three hours and she has four children herself. And she just was waking up every morning and running. And, um, she and I started getting up every single morning, you know, at like five o'clock in the morning and running together. And even the mornings when I was like, I am not getting out of bed, snooze, snooze, snooze. She would text me and be like, Hey, I'm outside. I'm like, Oh, I got to get out of bed. Sarah's waiting for me, you know? So she really got me out of bed. And then I have, I had another friend, Maggie, who was trying to qualify as well. And she would meet me for workouts. So I think getting a couple people, um, kind of, rallied around me to get me out of bed and getting me to do those workouts when it was easy to be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to have an easy run today, or I'm not going to wake up early. You know, those are the runs where it really counts. You know, those are the times when it's like, no, like doing the runs you don't want to do, you know, waking up early when it's so easy to sleep in. Um, and then just, I, a lot of things came together for me. Um, I had a lot of support. And like I said, my husband, allowing me to, you know, venture off and race. And, um, he made a lot of sacrifices for me too, as he was trying to further himself. And, you know, we had a newborn and, you know, you know, helping with the the baby and, um, my parents and my sister, my brother, like, I just have an incredible support system. And everywhere I went, people were willing to help with the kids or meet me at races, you know, cause you go and you go to try and race and, you know, you need people there to make it, make sure, you know, that there's someone for the kids or that you're making it to the start line or, you know, and, and at that point I'd started a doctoral program, you know, so I was also trying to, um, <laughs> do research. I mean, it just was crazy. So I would say, you know, the thing that got me there was everyone else. It wasn't even me. It was like, I was carried to the standard, if you will say. 
And yet, and it, here you are setting new goals. So you got, you have the doctoral program and I can't wait to talk to you about that as well. But when we were shooting messages back and forth last week, you, you threw out an audacious new goal, which is mm-hmm. like, you know, just like one goal after another. So let's talk about this and how it plays into your lead up to Atlanta. Yeah. So I'm going to run a fall marathon and, um, I've been logging some, some 90 mile weeks lately. And, um, yeah, I would, I want to run the A standard. So I, you know, I want to go under that 237 mark and, um, I'd like to do it before taking a little break before I gear up for before February. So, um, I mean, I definitely, before I hang it up, I've got, I've got some goals, but I'm so again, thankful for, um, being able to see people that, you know, are similar or I, you know, I see similar to me with, you know, a career and kids and a life that are running and even some people that are a little bit older than me and they're running fast. So that gives me hope. You know, I see that and I'm like, oh, there's hope for me. And me, and they could be much more talented than me. You know, I don't want to, you know, compare myself to anyone or even throw myself into an arena where I don't belong. But I really think because I know how hard I'm willing to work and I know how many miles I'm willing to run and um, I'm not afraid of that. Like, I believe that I, I again, here I am saying I believe I can do it. Yeah, there you go. And when you're when you're when you start thinking about your planning for the fall and then into the winter and making sure that you're nice and fresh for Atlanta, what are some of the fall marathons that you're you know kind of weighing about which one to do? Yeah, I'm really looking at Twin Cities right now in early October. I think I've kind of locked in on that. So um, I'll I'll be pretty focused on um, going to Minneapolis in October. Got it. All right. That's great. And then that will give you, you know, basically like three months or so after that to, to you know, continue working, you know, leading into like a pretty, you know, giving you a break after that race. And then, you know, November, December, January, then with a nice taper, it seems like that would be kind of a nice, a nice, um, nice gap between the two races. Yeah, that's kind of my plan. Uh, you know, and I, I, um, am going to go on vacation with my family, um, around the holidays. And I'm hoping that that will be, you know, good (laughs) rejuvenation for my soul and rest. And, um, yeah, I think it's important to have kind of some downtime too. So I'm, I'm planning those little vacations and little breaks from running, but, um, pretty much, yeah, I'm going to hit full throttle and I, you know, hope to perform well in February. All right. So you're running 90 miles a week. School's <laughs> about to start in what a week or two for you. You got two kids and you're in a doctoral program. So you got a dissertation that you're working on, which is like, you told me the dissertation. I'm like, Oh my God, this is going to be perfect <laughs> for my audience. So let's, let's talk about your dissertation. Yeah. So, um, thankfully I'm done with the doctoral program. So I've done coursework and I'm really just looking to, um, complete the dissertation and defend it. And then I'll, you know, be completely done, um, which is bittersweet. So, um, you know, we're, we're heading to the finish line here with, um, my research and my research has really been looking at, um, well, uh, media and within that, really trying to understand where we're at with media and social media. So then to dive deeper and look at what um, athletes are doing to promote themselves, to gain endorsements and uh, notoriety and really build a brand for themselves, 
uh, because that's what we're looking at now with, you know, we're in 2019 and that, and that's what we do. Right. And so, um, I'll, I'll specifically be, um, giving, um, so my dissertation will come out with findings, um, that studied long distance runners, women specifically, and how they build a brand for themselves on social media. That is so great. I can't like, I don't think I've ever written, like read a dissertation. I tried to read my brother's thesis. I got to the title and I was like, all right, I'm done. Like, I didn't understand it. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to understand the paper itself. I can't understand the title. But with that said, when you look at how, um, you know, going through your research and again, you don't need to like give me the conclusions, obviously, but are what runners would you say? Um, just generally speaking, have done a wonderful job in this arena, maximizing social media in addition to what they're doing in uh from the in the competitive landscape. Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard to, you know, rapidly name people off the top of my head, but I mean you can think of, you know, some of the big names out there and you have, you know, Stephanie Bruce and um, you know, Emma Coburn and some of these other really fantastic female athletes that have really showcased themselves. And, you know, I think without getting into the nitty gritty of the research, but looking at um, everything that surrounds it, you know, 40% of, of athletes are women. Yet in the media, it's only two to 4% that women are even showcased. And you think about, you know, even going, you know, to talk about the Women's World Cup and that the tickets were sold out within 24 hours. I mean, so just all those things, like I really want to promote awareness for women's athletics. And obviously, you know, I have a daughter now and I'm thinking about her future and just that how we can really showcase women and, and what they have to offer. And it's, I think it's totally appropriate and fine that the athletes are using social media to build a brand for themselves, but how can we make it so women don't have to work, you know, side jobs and things, or even have to do so much self-promotion to gain sponsorships. And I know, you know, in, in less visible sports like running, men are going through the same thing. So I'd like to see us bring more awareness and just um, understand it better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and running is a great test case for this because it's one of the rare spaces where it's generally understood that the women are doing, comparatively speaking, probably better job against their international competition than the men are, specifically in the marathon, which is, you know, it's, which is a unique thing, but you never know how it's going to be compensated, not only because a lot of the contracts have non-disclosure agreements, but they're just not public generally, right? It's not like, baseball or some of these, you know, unionized sports where the, uh, you know, the, the parameters of a contract are just public knowledge. Like you just trying to get a grasp on how people are compensated in these arenas is just a challenge in and of itself without even trying to analyze the situation. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, a lot of that, um, is, you know, obviously in the literature that surrounds it. And then also, um, you know, again, without going into too much detail, but just the types of posts that people are expected to do and how people gain notoriety and what, you know, what's the right way to even showcase a sport and what are we showcasing? Are we showcasing our athleticism or something else? So, um, anyway, <laughs> to be continued on that. <laughs> For sure. And I think it's funny. I like, I got to see this firsthand with my other podcast, The Road to the Olympic Trials, which was like, for me, I was like, I wonder if anyone's going to want to do this. At first, I was like, oh, no one's, you know, 
I think this is a cool idea. I think, you know, looking behind the curtain at some of America's best marathoners, like I think runners everywhere would probably be really excited to hear that. But I was like, no one's going to want to do that. So I'm like, no one's going to say yes to this. And it was so funny because within 24 hours, I built up the entire roster. Like I thought like I'd be lucky to get four people. And I got eight people within like 24 hours because everyone said yes. And I'm like, why did that happen? Like it wasn't because of me, right? Because these people didn't even know me, most of them. But it was like the same exact thing that you're mentioning. Like there is this, you know, either inherent or purposeful pressure to market themselves. And it was like, all right, look, here, here's another way I can do it. I, I should probably just take advantage of it. And like, I, obviously I'm like the, you know, the grateful beneficiary of it. But I think I just kind of like <laughs> walked into like a ready-made situation as opposed to like, you know, someone being like, no, nah, man, I'm good. Like I got all this other media already following me around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. No, and well, and I think, you know, runners were, were all an interesting breed. And I think at the end of the day, you can find a lot of similarities. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I know that I like to talk running and I think a lot of runners do too, especially with other runners. For sure. And one thing that you mentioned there, you know, you kind of like obliquely kind of inferred like, all right, are people getting uh, attention for their running or other things? And I think one of those other things can just be like, all right, like, People who are at the, the peak of athletic performance obviously have bodies, whether they're male or female, that are going to be attractive to other people, right? And like, mm -hmm. there's that, yeah. there's that pressure, that pressure of, but like, there's a fine line there, right? Like, again, whether it's a guy or a girl, and I think there's obviously like, it's, you know, I'm not going to like set any, like, set the world ablaze by saying that there's obviously, you know, much more pressure on the females from a body perspective than there are males. However, I'll just say, like, generally speaking, like people who are the best athletes in the world often, you know, are incentivized to display their bodies because, you know, they are, again, at peak physical condition. So where do you see the line between like just the general like displaying of like, hey, you should be proud and confident of like of what you've been able to put together and like you have like this amazing strong body and like being confident and proud of it versus like the exploitation of that same, of that same body. Yeah. Well, you're, you're directly hitting on what my research um, is going to talk about. Um, and that is that, you know, I even took a picture the other day as a Barnes and Nobles, just picking up a book and, um, as I was waiting in line, I happened to glance over at Sports Illustrated and Women's Health and a couple other magazines, and voila, they're all women in swimsuits. And I'm thinking, what does this have to do with actual sports? Like, none of them are, you know, it's not showcasing, you know, one of them is a basketball player. Oh, she's not, she's not holding a ball. She's not on a court. Um, the other woman was a tennis player. She's not holding a racket or a, you know, a tennis ball. So I think it's that type of, of things that um, I'm going to be addressing. And it's the same thing. So, um, but, you know, the other types of um, literature that's out there is saying, well, that's what people want to see. And that's what people buy. And um, the same thing when it comes to social media. Well, that's what gets the likes or that's what gets people sharing things. And, you know, It'll be interesting what actually comes out because my research is going to be um, sharing the stories from people personally and how social media um, impacts them. So hopefully they will they will share um, 
their their feelings and I can report on that. And also it's it's like you get that that feeling of like, all right, is this, you know, a long-term value versus short-term value? And I know that like you get that like so I work in fundraising and you have that as well. Like you have people who are like, what is their lifetime giving? As opposed mm-hmm. to like, you know, their their annual or whatever, because you want to get someone who's in it for the long haul. And I think I bring that up in light of someone like say Steph Bruce, like you mentioned before, like she has a great following on social media. And part of that is like, she is someone who confidently displays her body because she, as she should, like she is, you know, that body has done amazing things, right? Whether it's performance and giving birth to kids, like it is, is an amazing combination, but she also is very open and honest about just like how her, how her skin has dealt with, with childbirth and that like, she might have abs of steel, but it might not look like that at first glance just because her skin stretched out. Like, of course it would. You know, she gave birth to kids. You know what I mean? So she has this ability and because she's such a good communicator to communicate in a heartfelt and frank and open manner, as well as being um, she's able to be vulnerable right. in a way that endears herself to the people who are already positively predisposed to following her that it, you know, allows her not to get just like clickbait, like, all right, someone likes this post, but people are like our fans for life because they form an emotional bond connected to the vulnerability and strength that she displays. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, if we're going to mentor people in ways to communicate with, you know, fans or, um, a following and, and really to sort of, uh, glamorize our sport is, is to do it in that way, to be vulnerable. And I would say, you know, when I think about, um, her and some of the other, um, more well-known, um, you know, influencers out there in the sport, I think about just being authentic, you know, what they say is, is true. And, and, and within that vulnerability, they're also being authentic. And I think that's what people appreciate because at the end of the day, we're all human and we all get it. And um, especially, you know, d- you know, being in a sport where, yeah, our bodies are on display and and there's no des- denying that um, having children and getting older and some of the other things that come with it are, are aren't easy on our bodies. So I think when, you know, people can be open and honest about it, that it's definitely appreciated and empowering because it does help help us in those hard moments when it's like, or, you know, maybe you get on the line and you're not as fit and you got a few extra pounds or whatever. And you're like, Hey, screw it. That person doesn't care. And look how good they are. You know what I mean? I think it helps all of us to kind of get over it and, and just be the best version of ourselves. Well said, Liz. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I can't wait to root you on in the fall at Twin Cities and moving forward towards Atlanta. Oh, thanks so much, Matt. It was awesome talking to you. Liz, thank you so much for coming on the show. Also, thank you so much to our sponsors, Ragnar Relays, Megaton Coffee, and Tune Up CBD. I cannot thank them enough for supporting the show. Please, if you like the show, check them out. I'm telling you, I love Megaton Coffee. I drink it every morning. I use Tune Up CBD twice a day, and I am just, I'm so anxious to do a Ragnar Relay race. I got to be honest, I'm a little hesitant to do it during my marathon buildup, but I'm definitely going to do it. Within the next calendar year, I'm definitely going to do a Ragnar Relay race. 
Maybe even more than one because they do look really, really fun and exciting. So thank you so much for listening to this show, rating, reviewing, sharing, all of that. I really appreciate the love and the feedback that all of you provide. Thank you so much and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.